I'd invite you to make your way to 1 Timothy chapter 2. We're going to look today beginning in verse 8 and then go through uh, chapter 3 and verse 7. Uh, last Sunday morning in anticipation of Thanksgiving week and all that goes along with that, uh, I preached a message on the significance of Thanksgiving and what it means to give thanks to God. And we've been in a Sunday morning series uh, on the distinctives of a gospel-shaped church. And I want to return to that series this morning, but it's going to be a, a rather brief return because we'll emphasize the Lottie Moon uh, Christmas offering for international missions and what it means uh, to take the gospel to the ends of the earth next Sunday. And then following that, we're going to have some uh, Christmas emphases leading up to the actual Christmas day in celebration of the birth of Jesus. Uh, and then we'll pick back up in our series in 1 Timothy. Uh, but we're going to focus today, as I said, beginning in verse 8. So if you'll make your way there, we'll read this passage and work our way through it uh, together here in these few moments that we have today. And I want to speak to you on God called church overseers. Now, order is very important in life. Uh, order is the organized arrangement, generally speaking, of things around us. So when we talk about something being in order, we're talking about some measure of organization of responsibilities and resources, relationships, and other things in our life that are important to us. So order might include uh, personal behavior. It could include your family and the relationships in it your finances and how you manage those, your surroundings, as well as your future. And when life has some sense of order to it, it brings peace and it frees you up to be more productive than you would be otherwise. The flip side of that is disorder. Disorder, on the other hand, is restrictive and it's stressful. We're familiar with the feelings of stress that disorder can bring. And we know that order is better as it relates to our lives in general, to our spiritual life, and to our life with God. We also know that God is a God of order. You think about who God is. He is one in essence and three in person. He's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Uh, he functions in perfect harmony. And God is eternal and God is self-sufficient. He needs nothing outside of himself. And the Bible teaches us that creation is guided by the ordinances of heaven and earth. All that God has done and all that God is, is not haphazard in any way. He is the God of order. Now, in anticipation of what I want to share with you from these specific verses... I want us to think just for a moment about some foundational concepts of the church and how order is part of how the church is to function. And I want to pick up reading here in 1 Timothy 2 and verse 8 and listen to what the scripture says. This is Paul to Timothy and he writes, Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or argument. Also, the women are to dress themselves in modest clothing with decency and good sense, not with elaborate hairstyles, gold, pearls, or expensive apparel, but with good works, as is proper for women who profess to worship God. 
Verse 11, a woman is to learn quietly with full submission. I do not allow a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. Instead, she's to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and transgressed. But she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with good sense. In the broader context of what Paul communicates here, he's continuing with instruction on prayer in the church. And in the first seven verses of 1 Timothy chapter 2, we are urged to pray for everyone as our priority. Prayer changes our lives, and when we pray for other people, they'll be saved and they'll come to a knowledge of the truth. So we thought about it this way in 1 Timothy chapter 2 in these first seven verses. God ordains the means, which is prayer. He ordains the message, which is the gospel. That's the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And the method of the gospel, the communication of the gospel, that's the people of God. And here in verse 8, he instructs Timothy that men in every place are to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or argument. Then he turns specifically his attention to the women of the church. And he notes how women in the church are to present, present themselves with modesty and decency and with good sense. I think the specific styles that he's calling attention to here were problematic issues for the Ephesian church. In fact, some commentators think that he was specifically referring to some things that would have been more akin to the local temple prostitutes than would have been for people who were presenting themselves in the church. We don't know that uh, for sure, but he's certainly speaking in terms of how godly women should present themselves. And he's making the point that they were not to let a pagan culture set their fashion. Rather, they were to adorn themselves with good works as is proper for women who profess to worship God. You remember the Apostle Peter stressed in 1 Peter 3 and verse 4, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. So how you present yourself, whether you're a man or a woman, reflects your heart. It reflects your values. It reflects what's really important to you. And then verses 11 through 14 focus on the spirit and the approach of the women in the order of the church. The word translated as quietness in verse 11 and silent in verse 12 do not indicate complete silence or no talking at all. In fact, it is used elsewhere in the New Testament to mean a settled down spirit, an undisturbed uh, attitude, not unruly. Again, how you're presenting yourself in the public worship of the church. There's a totally different word that means to be silent or to say nothing. And I think the distinction between those words helps us understand a little bit better a passage that has been uh, highly complicated and disputed by many and a point of, I think, unnecessary argument. Now, I will say here that it, this is in keeping with what follows in the description of overseers in 1 Timothy 3. I believe the Bible teaches that the office of pastor, the role of the overseer is limited to men, and the focus is on roles and functions, not on value or standing before God. 
This is a crucially important distinction. Let me say it again. The focus is on roles and function, not on value or standing before God. The argument here builds on God's design for men and women in the creation order. Here Paul speaks to the roles given by God to men and women, and he's indicating what happens when the creation order is disrupted and man fails in his leadership role. The reference to her being saved through childbearing, I believe, is a prophetic statement pointing to the ultimate birth of Jesus, the Savior of the world, and where redemption would come from. And I think that's how it should be received. But further, men and women have distinct but complementary roles and responsibilities in the home and in the church. Now, we are living in an age when there is absolute confusion about gender and about what a man is and what a woman is. And I think the generation that is coming up, especially in the younger generation, is going to be in total confusion if, in fact, the church is not clear on what the Bible teaches and if we are not, in fact, bold in presenting it so that there can be an understanding of what reality and truth is. You cannot just call yourself something and in turn be that. You cannot just identify yourself as something and in turn be that. It is confusion that reigns and we need clarity on what the Bible teaches so that we can help people not be confused. Further, people will often say, well, Jesus didn't have anything to say about men and women and about marriage. This is a construct of Paul. So therefore, we can just cut out the sections that we don't like from the Apostle Paul because Jesus never said anything about it. I would directly challenge that point, and I would go to this passage of Scripture from Jesus in Matthew 19 and verse 4 through 6. He said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? This is Jesus speaking. And he said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Jesus reinforces the creation order. Jesus reinforces the reality of the fact that there are men and there are women. Jesus reinforces the reality of what marriage is to be and how it's to be defined. And people can say whatever they want to say, and they can create their own reality that they want to create. But if we believe that truth is that which corresponds to reality, then the truth that corresponds to reality will be the truth that defines what these things actually mean. This is very important for the church today because there's so much confusion around us. And I would say further, as we think about these differences in roles and functions, a woman can find great fulfillment in her relationship with God if, according to what this scripture teaches is true, that if she continues in faith, love, and holiness with good sense, that's where fulfillment is to be found. Now, I want to be clear here as well. We've been focusing in our midweek Bible study through the fall on the women of the Bible. We started back in August, and we're still continuing on as we come toward uh, the end of this calendar year. 
we've just scratched the surface of the significant women in the Bible. We started with Eve, the mother of all the living, and we've progressed on there. And now we're looking at some uh, characters from the New Testament, some women who have had significant roles in the church and in the expansion of God's work. In our study, we have noted that God created male and female to bear his image. He created them for the purpose of procreation and populating the earth. We've made the specific point that men and women have unique God-given roles in the world. And a healthy understanding of that helps us to have a healthier understanding of society and of our church and, uh, and of how we function in the church. And these roles and responsibilities, listen to me very carefully, are based on function and not value. We all have equal standing and equal responsibility before God, saved by grace and meant to live with the purpose that God created and redeemed us with. And women have an integral part in God's kingdom and in the church. In that, order is a part of how the church is to function. There's another foundational idea here, though, that I want to emphasize and make clear before I get into the specifics of the overseer. Christ is the head of the church. And one of the primary roles of those who are the overseers, the pastors, the uh, God-called leaders in the church, is to continually say to the church, look to Christ. We say to the church, follow us and imitate us as we imitate Christ. But even in that, we're saying, look to Christ. Keep your eyes on him. This is one of the primary responsibilities we have, is to continually say to you, look to Christ. Look to him through his word and know him. Because he's the one who is the redeemer, the savior of the world. Paul put it this way in Colossians 1 and verse 18. He, being Christ, is also the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. So let me state it this way. The living Christ is the head of the living church, which is the body of Christ. He has authority and lordship over the church. Church leaders are to surrender leadership to Christ, who has communicated the teachings and the practices of the church in the word of God, church members then are to follow Christ first and earthly leaders second as those earthly leaders follow Christ. Be imitators of me as I imitate Christ, 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 1. And then overseers of the church represent Christ and are called by God to lead by example. I pick up reading in 1 Timothy 3 and verse 1. This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to be an overseer, he desires a noble work. The word overseer is episkopos. Uh, the words overseer, bishop, and elder, I believe, all refer to the same God-called role in the New Testament church. There may be some variations on what those uh, roles, that role functions as, as far as the specifics of it but they refer to the same position in the church. Different English translations use alternate terms to describe the same position. 
There's also the concept of a shepherd, the verb form of the noun for pastor, as in Ephesians 4 and verse 11, where it speaks of uh, pastor teacher. To speak of an overseer, a bishop, or an elder, or a pastor is to reference the same office. The scriptural officers of the church, therefore, are pastors and deacons. And we're going to unfold this as we move our way through this section in 1 Timothy in the coming weeks. But the point I want to make here is I believe that the office of the pastor is limited to men as qualified by Scripture. That's what Paul's teaching here. You either have to just ignore it, cut it out, deny it, disagree with it, whatever. But you cannot believe that what this word says is true and then hold to something different. Attention is then turned in this section to leadership qualifications in the church. And he makes the point that it is valid to aspire to church leadership and that church leadership is noble work. Now, we know that church leadership can attract people with mixed and sinful motives, but it is good, noble, and honorable work. And as I share these verses with you, I want to say one word of caution. If you, at any point, put your pastoral leaders on a pedestal of perfection you're going to be sadly disappointed because we are sinners who have been saved by grace. We are called to specific roles and we have specific things that we have to do in the church. But ultimately, you're to look to Christ because he's the one who will not disappoint. That said, it is a high calling and there are high standards for those who are called to lead. So how is an overseer to lead by example? Well, first of all, an overseer leads by example in his personal character. Christian leadership is a matter of character first and foremost. And before I read this passage, I want to draw a distinction of what I see as some things that are very problematic in the church today. This has become more of a problem in the late 20th and early 21st century, maybe than ever before, because of the public platforming of leaders. And what churches are often looking for is the person that is the most appealing to them when they look at them. Maybe they're the most charismatic person, not in terms of spiritual giftings, but in terms of their eloquence and how they connect with the crowd and all the things that that people are drawn to. And they emphasize those things first over the character. And what we have seen time and again is when those things are emphasized and there becomes this celebrity mentality for people who are leading, whether it's in smaller churches or larger churches, the character always catches up with those things that are emphasized and there are so many train wrecks that we could point to because of it. And you say, well, why is this important for me to understand this? If you're sitting there in, the, in your seat, you're thinking, why do I need to understand this? This is kind of a technical discussion, and there are a lot of details here, and it seems kind of laborious to go through it. The reason being is the health of your spiritual life is in part dependent on those who lead you in the church. Your experience in God's church is so heavily weighted toward those who are leading you, how they lead you, what they're teaching you, how they're caring for you, what type of example they're setting, what type of spirit there is in the church, what type of culture it is that we're building. 
These things are of foundational importance and they cannot be overlooked. And it would be to your own detriment not to understand these things and to be able to look to those who are leading and have an understanding of how they should be leading. And if they get off track, as the body of Christ, be the people who can help to hold them accountable as well. Christian leadership is a matter of character first and foremost. 1 Timothy 3 and verse 2. An overseer, therefore, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, self-control, sensible, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not an excessive drinker, not a bully, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not greedy. Tim Chalice wrote a piece entitled, Why We Must Emphasize a Pastor's Character Over His Skill. He noted in the piece that he wrote that pastors are called and qualified to their ministry not first through their raw talent or their finely honed skill or their great accomplishments, but through their godly character. Now, here's the point that Chalice makes. He says, of all the many qualifications laid out in the New Testament, there's just one related to skill. He must have the ability to teach others. And there is one related to experience. He must not be a recent convert. The rest of the nearly 20 qualifications are based on character. What fits a man to ministry is not first accomplishment or capability, but rather character. So let's think about some of these things that are presented here in this passage. I mentioned that able to teach is the specific skill that is required. This relates to holding firm the trustworthy word and instructing in sound doctrine. So this has to do with the content, the presentation, and the fruit from teaching. This requires boldness and faithfulness. Uh, The overseer needs to be able to accurately and publicly be able to proclaim and understand and explain and apply the scriptures to the whole church. I would say that one of the first goals of this being able to teach is that people understand what you're teaching. And I've heard a lot of preaching, a lot of teaching. I'm, I'm listening, I'm thinking, what's he talking about? What's the point? If you don't walk out of here understanding the point, then you've not heard faithful teaching. Now for some of the specifics of personal character. Above reproach is literally blameless and observable conduct. It's used only in this epistle, and it means to have nothing in your conduct that would lend itself to a charge or an accusation, nothing to take hold upon. Self-controlled, sensible, and respectable is to be temperate and disciplined, clear-headed, not given to extremes, dignified in the best sense of the word. You want to be very cautious about a pastoral leader that's always going to one extreme or the other, both in his life and in his teaching. He's got two or three things that he really likes to talk about, and that's uh, most of what he talks about. And there are these extremes, or, or they're chasing after one thing or the other. There's to be a spiritual balance with a dignified sense of presenting yourself, self-controlled, sensible, and respectable. Hospitable means to be welcoming to both friends and strangers. It's a welcoming spirit because the church is to be a place where when people come and they encounter the leadership and they encounter the people in the church, they're to feel welcome. Why? Because Christ welcomes us, does he not? 
The Lord welcomes us. He loves and welcomes us to come into his presence. And we're to be examples and representatives of that. Then there's a translation here of of not an excessive drinker. Uh, Temperate is a word that is used. Not given to wine. Uh, This is a growing issue, I think, among younger people who are answering the call to ministry. And one that has to be dealt with because the pastoral leader has to be clear-headed Uh, not under the control of any substance uh, so that they can lead the church. It's an important issue. Not a bully, but gentle, not quarrelsome. So a man who looks to Jesus as example, what does the Bible say about Jesus? The Bible says that Jesus is gentle and lowly in heart. Jesus said he's gentle and he's lowly in heart. So you better watch out for someone who's always wanting to fight about something there are a lot of pastors, they just want to fight. They want to argue. They're, they're constantly looking for a fight. And if you encounter a pastoral leader who always has to be right about their own opinions that are not necessarily scriptural based, or they're argumentative in trying to make their points, or they have a, a spirit that is a disagreeable spirit, a quarrelsome spirit, you better watch out for that because there's trouble coming. Not greedy means to not chase after those things that uh, would draw you into the world. These are the earthly riches that tempt the heart away from eternal riches. So uh, uh, an overseer should not be a lover of money. And then he should be spiritually mature. Verse 6 says he must not be a new convert or he might become conceited and incur the same condemnation as the devil. Humility gained in spiritual maturity is indispensable. You learn a lot of lessons as the Lord humbles you and as you learn more about people and you learn more about spiritual life. And this is one of the qualifications here for the overseer. So I say to you, we cannot overemphasize the importance of character for the overseer. And let me state it to you another way. A man cannot lead beyond the limits of his character. He will find the limits of his character, and the church will find the limits of his character, and usually it will be in an embarrassing and very unfortunate way. This is of central importance to the qualifications. An overseer leads by example in his personal character, especially in the church. And then secondly, an overseer leads by example in his family. Let's pick back up in verse 4. He must manage his own household competently and have his children under control with all dignity. If anyone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of God's church? Now, back in verse 2, there's also the reference to the husband of one wife. Now, I want to deal with this uh, just for a moment. The literal translation is a one-woman man. It definitely relates to marital status and it relates to marital purity. Now, admittedly, there are some complexities to the situations of life where a man might have been divorced or even divorced and remarried before he became a believer, before he became a Christian. Or if a man has been divorced under scriptural allowances, which would be the unfaithfulness of their spouse, or abandonment by an unbeliever. Those are the two situations in Scripture. And churches have to be able to deal with that from a leadership standpoint of how they're going to apply that framework. Uh, I think it can also literally apply to only having been married once 
other than the situation of being re, a remarried widower. In other words, not divorced under any circumstances. Uh, these are all plausible uh, concerns and explanations. And that has long been the position and the practice of this church. To avoid the slippery slope, that's been the framework that we've gone by. And at any rate, it's important that the overseer be the husband of one wife and literally a one-woman man. He must manage his own household competently and have his children under control with all dignity. The word for household is oikos, um, which means house. And it's the same word that is used in verse 15, where it's used as a metaphor for the church. A man who fails at managing his household is not qualified to manage the church. The faith is first demonstrated in the home. This does not mean that the pastoral leader will have perfect children because just like the pastoral leader is a sinner saved by grace, his children uh, preferably will be sinners saved by grace who come to know Christ. And we know that in adulthood, a child may rebel from a good home uh, or maybe even as they're coming of age, they may do that. But here's the question. Is the rebellion because of their father who's the overseer? Or is it in spite of their father's best effort in their lives to point them to Christ? And therein lies the difference. And I think this is how this qualification should be applied. The health of the family life of an overseer is directly connected to the health of the church. And we'll want to note here that pastoral ministry is challenging for families. It is. Sometimes churches put unrealistic and unhealthy expectations on the pastor and on his family. Uh, there was a recent survey that was done. And in that survey, 80% of pastors who re responded said that ministry has had a negative effect on their families. Some churches are full of people who have unreasonable expectations on the pastor's family. I am grateful to be able to say to you that uh, in two decades of experience with you, in this regard, this has not been the case for our church. And it's one of the reasons that I'm still standing up here in front of you after two decades of ministry with you, because we've had a healthy environment in which to raise our family. And our family has been blessed because of the health of this church and how we've been able to minister and serve together. In that, however, sacrifice is required to serve and to be a pastor's family. It's part of the territory. It's part of what we sign up for. No need in whining about it. There's a price to be paid for a pastor's family. But it can be paid in a way that is ultimately healthy for everybody involved. One of my stated goals early in the ministry when I uh, surrendered my life to, to lead a local church and to be a pastor, to be an overseer, one of my stated goals was when I had children, that my children will be able to say at the end of the day that I was the same person at home as I was when I was here standing in front of you preaching. And I was the same person when I was out in the community dealing with people that didn't know the Lord and didn't know anything about us as I was at home. I have been an imperfect father and an imperfect pastor. But I can say by God's grace that there has been a consistency in our family life that has been encouraged and supported by you, that has been empowered and strengthened by the Holy Spirit, 
and has been lived out practically for us to the point that we now have three adult children who love the Lord and who are active in the church. It's by their own volition. They're adults now. They can make their own decisions. They can go their own way. But by their own choice, they're active and faithful in the church and love the Lord. And I want to say to you that part of the reason for that is because you have made an investment in them. And you have been encouragement to them along the way. And you have supported us as a family. And you've supported Emily as my wife. And we've been in a blessed situation to where we've been able to live out a family life that God has uh, richly blessed us in. And we don't take that for granted. And we are grateful for you and we are grateful to the Lord for that. That is a significant issue because an overseer is to lead by example in his family in the home. And I think our other pastors would uh, support that uh, thought as well because you've been supportive of them in the same way and I know you'll continue to be. And then third and finally, an overseer leads by example in the community. I pick back up reading in 1 Timothy 3 and verse 7. Furthermore, he must have a good reputation among outsiders so that he does not fall into disgrace and the devil's trap. The overseer must have a good reputation among literally people who are outside the church. Now, why does this matter? Because church leaders are the public face of the church. A good reputation means literally a beautiful witness with outsiders. The leader's reputation must be such that even those who are not a part of the church will take note of his irreproachable behavior. I like the way Alexander Strzok uh, addressed this practically. He said, non-Christians may know more about the character and the conduct of a prospective elder than even the church. Quite often, the prospective elder uh, has a non-Christian fellow workers or relatives or neighbors who have daily contact with him, and they may have more contact with him than even the people in the church do. And if a pastor elder has a reputation among non-believers that he's dishonest or he's a womanizer or in some other way uh, unfaithful before an unbelieving community, they're going to take special note of that hypocrisy. And they're going to mock the leader and they're going to mock the church. And ultimately, Satan's going to use it uh, to try to discredit the gospel. His influence will be ruined and the churches will be negatively affected as well. Now, let me give a word of caution at this point. Reputation can be manufactured. Character cannot. If reputation is manufactured and the character is not what it seems, it will show itself eventually, probably sooner rather than later, but sometimes it's later rather than sooner. Somebody said, reputation is what you're supposed to be. Character is what you are. Reputation is what you have when you come to a new community. Character is what you have when you go away. Reputation's made in a moment. Character is built in a lifetime. Your reputation's learned in an hour. Your character does not come to light, perhaps for years. A single report can give you your reputation, a life of toil will give you your character. Your character is what God knows you to be. Your reputation is what men think you are. I want to warn all who have responsibility as overseers 
and all who would aspire to be overseers that what God ultimately cares about is who we are and then he wants who we are to match up with who we present ourselves to be. The pastor should be kind, respectful, and gracious in the community in his dealings with people. And I think if Paul were writing 1 Timothy 3 in the 21st century, I think he would also say in this age we live in, this also includes representation in the online world. I think he would. I think he would include that. Why? Because there are a lot of pastors that if you watch closely what they say and how they live in the online world, you would lose respect. I've lost a lot of respect for a lot of people that I've followed and listened to and watched from afar because of how they present themselves in that element. But here's something you need to know that's important. If you present yourself in the online world in that way, it's probably actually indicative of who you are and what's going on in your heart. And we need to be careful of how we deal with the world, how we represent ourselves in the world, and how we represent ourselves for the church. Because it's a high calling and a significant responsibility. Now clearly, overseers as representatives of the church are constantly in peril of the snares of the devil. I would say to you that for those who answer the call to Christian ministry and serve in a capacity in the local church in that regard, the spiritual warfare goes up several levels. And the barrage of temptations and things that would draw us away from the Lord and draw us away from the church are plenty. And Satan wants nothing more than to bring disgrace on God's people by snaring the leaders of the church in sin. He wants to discredit ministers of the gospel so that he can try to discredit the gospel. And, and overseers to lead by example in the community toward outsiders. So I give this to you and then I'm going to close. I'm going to give you some practical application of this from the church's viewpoint. An overseer, therefore, must be above reproach. So what role can you play in the church that you're involved in being healthy and of having leaders that you can respect, that you know you're genuinely loved, they're imperfect people, but they're seeking to serve a perfect Savior? What can you do to help in that regard? What can you do from your side to be a part of a healthy church where you can grow in your faith, where your kids can be nurtured and raised up and grown up in their faith like ours have been, to where you're able to exercise your spiritual gifts, what can you do that can help that? I would start with you can pray for your pastors. And I do not say this as spiritual talk. This is not a religious platitude. This is not saying what I know needs to be said. I'm telling you this is essential. And I know that from the day that I walked through the door here and God confirmed that I was to lead you as the under-shepherd of Christ, there are people in this church who committed to pray for me and for my family daily, and they have maintained that commitment over two decades. We do not take that lightly. We know that the reason that we've been able to endure and the reason that in many regards that we've been able to flourish as a church is because there's been that healthy spiritual dynamic 
where we understand the role of prayer and praying for one another. Pray for your pastors. Pray for your leaders. Pray that God would guide and keep and protect them. Pray that God would give us wisdom to lead you, that God would give us the kind of gracious attitude that we need to deal with difficulties. Pray that God would help us to have the resolve that we need in times of crisis and in times of loss when we're experiencing the same grief that you're experiencing, but we're having to lead in other ways. Pray that God would give us the boldness to speak the truth into your life in your life when you need to hear it, but you don't want to hear it. There's so many things that you need to be praying for because it's for your spiritual benefit and it's for our collective benefit as the body of Christ. And then I would say continue to encourage and support your pastors and their families. Um, I can tell you uh, by my own testimony that there have been times through the years where I just wasn't feeling it. I was dealing with some particularly difficult situation or particularly difficult person or a particularly difficult season, and I was depleted. And I can see faces and I can hear words of people who came along that God sent at just the right time, who spoke a word of encouragement, who were there just to listen, who reminded me that they had been praying for me along the way that loved my family without any expectation other than just to extend the grace of God to them. Those folks are invaluable. This extends not only to the pastoral leaders, but here's what I believe. I believe if a church grows that spirit of encouragement and support for the leaders, they'll also extend that same type of encouragement and support for each other. And we desperately need it. We need to be encouraged. When you come through the doors uh, and we worship together and we minister together, and we, serve, we need to be encouraged. The world wants to tear us down. Everything in the world is weighing us down. And the Lord's given us encouragement by the Holy Spirit and through the encouragement of his people. And then the last thing I'll say is cooperate with your pastors and continue to cooperate with your pastors. And I want to point out a scripture before I close from Hebrews 13 and verse 17. And here's what it says. Obey your leaders and submit to them since they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. So that they can do this with joy and not with grief. For that would be unprofitable for you. So it says, listen, cooperate with the people who are trying to lead you spiritually so that they won't have to do that with grief. They can do it with joy. And it's profitable for you. It's for your own good. So do it for your own good, if nothing else. But do it ultimately for the glory of Christ. And I'm so thankful that that has been the spirit of operation in this church. This is how we've lived. And it's why we've been able to do what we've been able to do. Have we always agreed on everything? No. Are we always going to agree on everything? No. Am I always going to be easy to deal with? Absolutely not. Are you going to be easy to deal with all the time? No, you're not. I can tell you. But what we do is we decide to just lay aside stuff that's, that's not of central importance, an opinion, a way of operation that we think because of our own preferences. And we say, listen, we got one mission. And that one mission is to glorify God, to share the gospel, to impact the world, and all the while, I'm going to be up here, and I'm going to say to you, 
Keep looking to Christ. Just keep looking to him. He's your hope. He's your ultimate encouragement. Don't ultimately look to me or the people around you or the world. Look to Christ. If you look to Christ, you have everything you need. Everything you need and then some. Because he's good. Father, thank you for this time that we've had together this morning. So grateful for your word. In a passage that at first glance looks technical and a little bit difficult to approach, we find in it the beauty of what it means to look to you and how you have organized the church, the church that Christ gave his life for, that he bled and died for, that he purchased with his own blood. And we yield it all to you because you are worthy. Father, I take very seriously that verse that I just read. And Father, if there were one thing that would keep me awake at night, it would be to know that one day I will stand before the chief shepherd and I will give an account for how I have shepherded the souls of your people. Lord, may you strengthen us to do it well. Protect us from the enemy. Find us faithful when it's all said and done. And we pray that you would get the glory for all of it. Father, I thank you that I can stand before a church that is a, that is a healthy church. A church that loves and honors Christ. A church that wants to do something that counts beyond the immediate that would make a difference for eternity. Help us to stay focused on those things. Help us to be a blessing to one another. And help us to continue to reach people with the good news of Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.